0: Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 112, Good Things Come in Threes. In our last episode, we got into Pitt's plans for a three-pronged assault in North America, one against Lübeberg, one against Fort Duquesne, and a third against Fort Carillon. We then looked at the events at Fort Carillon, which saw Major General Abercrombie throw away 2,000 lives before fleeing from a French army that wasn't pursuing him. Today, we turn to Louisbourg, Duquesne, and the unplanned attack on Fort Frontenac. Firstly, we'll turn to Louisbourg. Louisbourg sits on Cape Breton Island and was the key to guarding the Gulf of St. Lawrence, Commanding the passage between Cape Breton Island and Newfoundland, Loudon had tried to take it in 1757, and the British set about trying again in June 1758. A force landed on June 8th at Gabarus Bay, about four miles away from Louisbourg. Major General Amherst was in command along with Brigadier-General Wolfe. The British met with initial resistance, but the French soon retreated to the safety of their fortifications, preventing what could have easily been another British disaster. The British gathered their forces around Louisbourg, just out of reach of the artillery. Compared with the other fortifications we've seen in North America during our series, Louisburg was rather formidable, but its fate was already sealed. To explain why, I'd like to introduce a new name into the narrative Vauban. Vauban was a French military engineer who lived during the reign of Louis XIV. He specialised in siege warfare and made numerous developments to the field. His main long-term contributions concerned how to make a siege, such as concentrating fire on specific areas rather than multiple targets, and using trenches to create positions close to the enemy walls that were safe for the attackers. However, in the short term, he was more well known for his defensive ideas, such as the perfectly designed fort. I won't bore you with the technical specifications, but if you think a star-shaped fort, that is a Vauban design. It was quite successful in the late 17th century, and the French military invested heavily in it throughout the early 18th century. Forts of the design were still being created as late as the 1860s, which is very indicative of the conservatism of French military thought that would lead to disasters such as the Maginot Line. By the 1750s, Valba forts were already outdated. They were very expensive to build and to maintain and to rebuild when destroyed. Offensive firepower increased. And then there was the fundamental flaw in the system. Valba estimated that a perfectly defended fort could last about 40 days before either the defenses were weakened or the defenders ran out of supplies. We've seen bits of this in our narrative. The terms a victor would offer depended on how, by the book, the defense had been. Had they been unorganized and fallen within a couple of days, that was bad defending. You would be captured. Had you run a tight ship and lasted as long as you could, then you would be rewarded with honourable terms. This was very gentlemanly, but you can't ignore the fact that when it comes down to it, it is war. It's not a game. And when it comes down to it, a system that can be beaten simply by waiting 40 days is not very good. All the British had to do was conduct a verbal assault. They created trenches and started inching closer and closer until they could safely bring in their artillery and make concentrated attacks as the walls turned to rubble. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy arguably won the siege by controlling the North Atlantic. Two French convoys to Louisbourg were defeated, one near Gibraltar and a second in the Bay of Biscay. The defenders could do everything by the book, and Louisbourg did, but you could not escape the fact that without resupply, the fort could not survive forever. Louisbourg lasted six weeks, during which 400 defenders were killed, while 1,300 more were either wounded or diseased. The governor of Louisbourg was expecting honourable terms, as he had done everything as he should have done according to the rule book of European War, but everything had changed. The Fort William Henry Massacre had not been forgotten, where the British surrender after doing everything they could have done, and they were offered terms and then they were killed. General Amherst denied the French all honours. The military population were made prisoners of war and deported to England, while civilians were deported to France. This was a game-changer, and was everything that Montcalm had feared after William Henry. With the British in control of Louisbourg, we'll turn our attentions to east to Fort Frontenac, the linchpin holding together New France and the territory beyond. If you follow the Saint Lawrence River inland from the sea, you'll go through Montreal, which was the target of the Fort Carillon expedition, And eventually you'll reach the first of the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario. There were two forts at either end of the lake. Fort Frontenac, in the northeast, where the lake meets the St. Lawrence, and then Fort Niagara, in the southwest, where the lake connects to Lake Erie. The British assault would be led by Lieutenant General John Bradstreet, born in 1714 in Nova Scotia, and who had climbed the ranks with the support of William Shirley, but with such character that he was able to survive the fall of William Shirley and was taken on by Loudon. Like the men we introduced last time, Bradstreet was excellent with logistics, and by 1755 he had understood the importance of Frontenac and became fixated with the idea of taking it by early 1758, he managed to persuade Loudon to let him do it, on the condition that he pay for it himself, and he would be reimbursed if the project proved a success. However, before the expedition could get underway, Loudon was replaced, and Pitt did not plan an attack on Fort Frontenac, and Abercrombie would not alter Pitt's plans. Bradstreet would get his chance, though, When Abercrombie was defeated at Fort Carillon, Bradstreet started petitioning and finally drove Abercrombie to send a force of 5,600 to distress the enemy and attack Fort Frontenac if the opportunity presented itself. Having spent some time with Abercrombie in our narrative, he was likely to be focused primarily on doing anything to distract the French from his own position. However, the plan was rather good. Establishing a position on the Upper Mohawk would protect against an invasion route while reopening trade with the Iroquois. Word spread of what happened and that the operation was of limited aims, which would then lull the French to a false sense of security. They reached great Carrying place, site of Fort Bull, which General Webb had destroyed back in 1756, in August, and the full plan was revealed. Some of the Indians abandoned the British immediately. Bradstreet set off with 3,100 men and reached Lake Ontario on August 21st. They spent a night at Oswego and started moving. They could have been spotted by a French scouting party, and the plan would have been ruined no French ship set sail for three days, and on August 25th, they made it to within sight of the fort, setting up defences half a mile away. They loaded the guns the next morning. They didn't have time to prepare the elaborate trench systems that a real Valmain assault needed, but the French garrison seemed remarkably timid. He dared to take a breastwork that was a couple hundred metres from the wall and was unchallenged. The next day, the British were able to fire from basically point-blank range. The defending commander raised a red flag by 8am, signalling truce. Breadstreet's terms were that the French could keep their belongings and would go as prisoners of war to Albany. They could be exchanged for British prisoners. Within an hour... Bradstreet had Fort Frontenac. The fort was held by a mere 110 soldiers. They were outnumbered 30 to 1. The garrison had been stripped bare to defend Carillon. Barely any of the fort's 60 artillery pieces could be used. While word had reached them of the assault three days before it happened, and they sent word to Montreal asking for help, there was no chance of it arriving in time the French had no choice. They were in a spectacularly weak defensive position. They could not hold out. Yet, Fort Frontenac was immensely valuable. Bradstreet estimated that there were £35,000 of goods alone, not to mention the sloops that made up the entire naval strength of the French on Lake Ontario. After speaking with the French commander, Bradstreet quickly saw that a French rescue mission would soon arrive, so he took what he could from the fort and destroyed the rest. He also altered the terms of surrender, allowing the French to return directly to Montreal. This was both kind to the French, and with the French army on the way, he didn't want to be leading a trail of women and children. He left on August 28th and was at Oswego by the 31st. The French relief force found what was left at Fort Frontenac the next day. Bradstreet continued on to the great carrying place and thence to Albany. He knew that the French were weakened on Lake Ontario. They had lost all their ships, and he suspected that the other forts had their garrisons removed too. He asked Abercrombie for permission to take Fort Niagara as well. This would be the first step on a campaign which would take him to Thunder Bay on the northern shores of Lake Superior. This was far too ambitious for Abercrombie, who ordered Bradstreet to return to Lake George. He obeyed, but wrote to England complaining about Abercrombie, as much as Charles Lee was doing. While Abercrombie would get a lot wrong in 1758. It's worth remembering that he did allow Bradstreet to make the assault on Fort Frontenac. He also allowed Brigadier General Forbes to negotiate with the Indians of the Ohio, which was against protocol. Only Sir William Johnson was allowed to deal with the Indians, and he would not do this due to his relations with the Iroquois. Abercrombie knew that allowing Forbes to do this would set Johnson against him, but he did it anyway, and relations with the Indians would be crucial for Forbes' assault on Fort Duquesne. Forbes had been forced to rely on Cherokee allies, but they arrived early in the season in large numbers and needed training, making them more of a hindrance than a help. The Cherokees found Forbes equally frustrating as he seemed determined to turn them from allies into subordinates. When the Cherokee leader tried to leave, he was arrested as a deserter. Forbes stopped this, but the Cherokees had taken offence and left. Forbes may have found them frustrating, but he knew that they needed the Cherokees and wanted them to deal with the Indians in the Ohio. The Indians were open to the idea of peace with the British, but thought that if they abandoned the French, the British would immediately seize the land. But the French position was clearly weakening. A peace was reached. The British pledged not to settle the Ohio. The Iroquois were brought in again as Hegmonts of the Eastern Delawares in practice, while the Western Delawares could deal directly with Pennsylvania. This was all eventually ratified at the Treaty of Easton. Forbes was advancing towards Fort Duquesne through Pennsylvania more slowly than Braddock had, but he was well supplied. Washington wrote to Forbes that he would not reach Fort Duquesne on the route he was taking, and that he should instead go on Braddock's route through Virginia, but Forbes suspected that Washington and the other Virginians wanted this for land speculation rather than tactical reasons. Despite being bedridden with dysentery, hearing that his scouting party had been defeated and one of his senior officers captured, and deeply concerned as the terrain grew difficult, he feared that Washington might be right. But Forbes pressed on. September turned into October, and the rain started. Still, Forbes pressed on. All the while, the French were struggling. They lacked supplies following the fall of Fort Frontenac in August. They had raided the British to try and hold them back, hoping that the winter would force a British retreat. But each successful raid led to plunder, which led to Indian allies going home. French supplies continued to shrink, and by November, Fort Duquesne was held by a skeleton crew of 300, with only 100 fit for service. Forbes was ready to abandon the campaign when word reached him of just how bad the French position was. In mid-November, a force set out, with Washington in the lead, leaving much of the camp behind. By the 21st, they were at Turtle Creek, A dozen miles from Fort Duquesne, the French commander tried to get more Indians to join him, aware of what was going on at Easton, but they refused. Knowing the game was up, on November 23rd he abandoned and destroyed Fort Duquesne. The British arrived the next day. Forbes's provincials were due to return home on the 30th, so he set up a stockade to garrison a few hundred troops. A very small number, the Indians could easily destroy it, so Forbes was at great pains to emphasize that they were not there to colonize, only to trade. Forbes's health was now in terrible shape, and he returned to Philadelphia to set his affairs in order before he died. He advised Amherst, who had by this point succeeded Abercrombie, that strength was needed in the West. He died in March 1759, after doing what had seemed like the impossible. The Forbes Road had opened the Ohio Valley to Pennsylvania, and Fort Duquesne had been destroyed. In its place at the forks of the Ohio and the Allegheny was a new fort named after the statesman whose strategy had seen in the course of the war change, Fort Pitt. As the settlement grew, it became a town, Pittsburgh, but spelt in the Scottish faction, like Edinburgh. With a small change in pronunciation, this becomes Pittsburgh. Thanks for listening, I'll see you next time.